0: We began a series last week through the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. And so I'd invite you to turn there with me this morning, whether you are joining us online for the first time or you're here with us live for the first time. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse because that's what we do. We take a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, line by line, word by word, most of the time. I'm excited to begin next fall the book of Exodus with you. And we're going to be walking through that for Oh, the better part of a decade, and then <laughs> won't quite be that long. But uh, but as we come of chapter fourteen, as we come to the conclusion of chapter fourteen, which is a conclusion of the book, I want to deal with it with two more sermons today and next week on the subject of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I began last week by mentioning this, but I want to draw attention to it again today. It is impossible for us to ever study a subject, an issue, or a topic and separate it from people. What we're doing here is corporate worship. We are Christians, unapologetically. We are followers of Jesus. I cannot speak to the individual spiritual condition of every one of you. That would be quite arrogant and presumptive, nor can you speak to the spiritual condition of the parts of my life you cannot see. But on the whole, any person, regardless of their background, given enough time, would walk into a room like this, and they would say, this is a group of Christians. They are followers of Jesus. They're singing about him. They're worshiping him. They're reading his word. This is a distinctive group defined by some basic beliefs, but really known by their relationship With the Lord. This is not a religion of dead people. It is a relationship of living people inside of faith where we believe our God is not to be memorialized because he's not dead, he's alive. And so we relate to him. And often when we get ourselves into issues of debate or issues of disagreement, The human temptation is to carve out the topic and to try to dot our I's and to cross our T's. And I'm all about scholarship, as is illustrated by our school of ministry. We're going to study the Bible deeply. We want to engage our mind, as you'll see in a moment. But we do well to remember these issues affect real people. I mean, think about tomorrow. I hope you'll enjoy some time off. I'm sorry the weather doesn't lend itself to picnics and barbecues, but some of you will have the day off tomorrow, and it is good. But hopefully you've been reminded that real men shed real blood for the foundation and the freedom of this country. And so we do well not to separate these holidays from the real lives that are affected. It's the same in spirituality. We do well not to separate the topic from how it affects real people. And let me tell you how you really encouraged me. If you didn't hear last week's sermon, it is a pretty complicated subject where I tried to lay out a fair and balanced foundation. And the thing that encouraged me the most were the people in our church who grew up within the charismatic movement coming to me and encouraging me, not feeling ostracized or alienated, but telling me how much it meant to them to study this again and to renew their interest in trying to discern God's will in and around the gift of tongues. That means a lot to me because I know our church is made up of many, many people who are passionate about the Lord, enthusiastic about their faith, and who come out of a charismatic or Pentecostal background. And it never edifies the church to disregard, discredit, or discourage the legacy that was used to bring them to Christ. So we laid out last week some ground rules. One of them was we were going to lead with love, and then we're going to fight for clarity. And, and and in doing so, we begin to unpack the biblical gift, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. How do we understand the gift of speaking in tongues? Well, I took you to the first occurrence of it in the New Testament. And by the way, it's only mentioned in two books the book of Acts and the book of 1 Corinthians. And therefore, we know that it was a gift primarily exercised during the apostolic age, though I'm not in any way suggesting that the spiritual gift of tongues has all but disappeared. I actually don't believe that either. But in the book of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came and fell upon the people for the first time after the resurrection, this is the day the church was born. And it happened on a special holiday, a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. This is why Pentecostals chose that name to describe their identity in the faith. And on the day of Pentecost, after Peter had preached, the Lord kept his word. Jesus said, after I leave, I will send the helper. And in the New Testament, the helper is a title for the Holy Spirit. So if you ever find that word helper referring to the Holy Spirit, the H is always capitalized. This is the editors trying to teach you about what the helper is. More specifically and more accurately, I should say, who the helper is. So the Holy Spirit falls, and something amazing happens. Acts 2, verses 4 through 6, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is a manifestation of the gift of tongues. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and as, as, and at this sound the multitude came together, and this is very important, and they were bewildered, not because they were confused at unrecognizable utterances, no, They were bewildered because each one was hearing them, that's the believers, speak in his own language. So the first manifestation, the first appearance of the gift of tongues in the New Testament did not lead to confusion, but rather it led to clarity. People could hear praise, worship, and the gospel in their own language. And this is when I pointed out to you, that 1 Corinthians chapter 14, our home text today, is Paul reacting to the misuse and abuse of the gift of tongues. But in doing so, he does not dismiss the gift. He rather shows the difference between confusing, unrecognizable language and the spiritual gift of being able to speak to someone in a tongue they can understand. And I don't know if you remember, because I had to go fast last week. What's new? But I had to go fast last week. But I showed you that most scholars believe it, I I would affirm this, that he's actually dealing with two different uses of the word tongue in 1 Corinthians 14. And the difference in tense shows the difference in meaning. I gave you a column last week. It looks something like the one on the screen. A tongue, when Paul uses that, is referencing someone saying utterances that are not understood by anyone else. Tongues is the spiritual gift of speaking a language you do not know in order to communicate the gospel, what occurred in Acts chapter 2. And when you go back to that column and you look at it, if you'll see the list on the left and on the right, you'll see verse 2, verse 4, verse 13, verse 14, verse 19 in your chapter 14 is a reference to a tongue, and it's always not necessarily in a negative light, but Paul is being critical of a tongue and what it lacks. It lacks clarity. It lacks understanding. But then in verses 6, 18, 22, 23, and 39, when Paul speaks of tongues, he speaks of them as if they can be understood, interpreted, translated, and edifying to the church. So we boil all this down. To what we talked last week, which is Corinth was full of spirituality. And because it was full of spirituality in all kinds of pagan religions, it was very common for people to participate in pagan religious cultic services to false gods and work themselves up into a trance. And one of the characteristics of this pagan worship was to meditate into a trance, through muttering and uttering unrecognizable syllables. Well, when the people of Corinth came to know Christ, their legacy, their history wasn't erased. When God saves you, he doesn't give you amnesia about your past. You're fully aware of where you have gone and what you have done, and in the Corinthian case, who you have worship. And so, what appears to be the case is that some of those new Christians, in their zeal for Jesus are bringing some of those unedifying practices into worship. And Paul's got to address that because it's causing confusion and chaos in the worship service. And so that's what chapter 14 is about. And when you think about it that way and you pull together what we have in Scripture about tongues, which is primarily the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, a solid working definition of the gift of tongues is this. The gift of tongues is the supernatural ability for one to speak a language previously unknown to the person in order to communicate the message of the gospel and or anything that edifies the church and aligns with the word of God. It must always be accompanied with the gift of interpretation. Now that is not a controversial definition, but that definition alone clears up most of the abuse and the misuse of it in worship services in Corinth and worship services today. God wants worship services to be full of passion, emotion, zeal, expression of who we are, but he also prioritizes clarity, understanding, agreement, and oneness. And and with that in mind, I'd like you to think about this subject in relationship to people. There are always three people affected by the manifestation of the gift of tongues. And that's what Paul does beginning in verses 13 down through verse 20 this morning. In fact, one gift, three people. What are those people and how are they affected? So don't think of this through the lens of theology or the technical language. Think about people. People and how they're affected. This matters, and I'll show you why. The first person affected by the use or the misuse of the gift of tongues is the one in worship who's speaking with the gift of tongues. Paul begins to address that in verse 13. Look what the Bible says. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So Paul starts with the person who is praying. Supposedly speaking in a tongue. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. So immediately, Paul says, here's the greatest need of someone who feels led to speak in a tongue. What is the greatest need? It is to be fully engaged in what you're doing. To engage both your spirit, soul, and to engage your mind. And any activity, whatever you choose to call it, any exercise of any spiritual gift, that separates your passion, your soul, your spirit from your cognitive, rational consciousness, according to Paul, well, it's unfruitful. Now, again, whenever we come to this passage, we have to deal with something that actually is not in the passage. Paul here begins with the word prayer. So is he talking about speaking in tongues over the church are praying in tongues. Often, those of the charismatic faith will separate the two. I actually think there are two different things in play. But I don't believe chapter 14 is talking about using a private prayer language with the Lord. Because everything in chapter 14 has to do with that which is done in corporate worship. So let me just say, that no matter what your convictions or exposure are to a private prayer language, this is not about private prayer, this is about corporate prayer. Do you realize this morning alone how many times you have heard corporate prayer in this service? And so in thinking about private prayer, I I pointed out last week that Paul's words here are about public corporate prayer. One of my concerns about a private prayer language is that Jesus was asked how to pray. And he prayed in very clear, succinct, orderly way. They said, Jesus, how do we pray? He said, our Father, which art in heaven. He even warns against trying to use words to convince God to do your will. The need for some secret, unrecognizable language in prayer to commune with God runs the risk of teaching that God can't redeem your mind and the language you know how to speak. And so at at our church, a, a, a church that is not of the charismatic tradition, we rejoice in what our charismatic brothers and sisters have taught us about being passionate in prayer, about being passionate in worship. I pointed out the strengths that we gleaned from the charismatic movement last week. You can go back and listen to that message. But, but as a whole, I, the pastors, we do not practice a private prayer language. When I pray, I pray with my mouth closed at times, and I'm thinking in my spirit before the Lord. But most of the time when I pray, whether I'm having my quiet time on my front porch with my cup of coffee in the morning, or I'm praying over you, I'm praying in the English, well, the Alabamian English language. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, praying, I'm praying in the language that I know, and I, I rejoice to hear other people pray because it edifies me. We respect those in our congregation who have come from a tradition where they believe sincerely in a private prayer language, but it is not what we promote or teach here, and we can do both. However, this passage is about corporate prayer. Can you be blessed by prayer? Absolutely. Think about Paul's letters. In almost all of his letters, he not only says, I've been praying for you, he lists how he's been praying. I mean, think about when we share prayer requests. I was on the phone last night with a pastor friend of mine who lost his grandson. A brave young man, a firefighter in the Columbia area. Was killed fighting a fire. He's the grandson of a pastor who's a dear friend of mine. Used to be a member of our church. And so I called my friend and we were talking about that. And as I was talking to him about him preaching the funeral of his grandson, and as I was talking to him about the pain and the sorrow that he's dealing with, I said two things on the phone, probably similar to what you would say. I said, Kermit, I'm going to be praying for you and Henrietta. That's their names. Kermit, I'm going to be praying for you, and I'm going to be praying for your family. And here's what I'm going to be praying for, for you specifically. Now, I told him, I'm going to be praying for his strength and his wisdom and his ability to preach the gospel at this young grandson's funeral, a grandson that he himself led to the Lord when he was a little boy. Now, now why would I do that? Because I wanted not only Kermit to be encouraged that he'll be covered in prayer— I wanted him to know how I'll be praying. It doesn't mean that me telling Kermit the prayer means that it will become reality in Kermit's life, but I've learned a long time ago that when you tell me how you're praying for me, it makes me cognizant of the things I need to be focused on. So as we agree in the Spirit in prayer, the Lord not only moves in your life, he's able to move through your life. So in Corinth, People were standing up and praying in unrecognizable utterances, and they were not, according to Paul, engaging their mind. Look at verse 13. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. In other words, get the meaning. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And then verse 15, he kind of makes the argument, I want the spirit, I want the passion. This is what I appreciate so much about my charismatic brothers and sisters, some of which come into our church from that background. Their passion and their zeal for the Lord and their sensitivity to the spirit. I want that. Some of you who did not come out of that tradition would do well to learn from them for that passion and that zeal and that fervor. But Paul says, I can have both. I can be passionate and zealous and have my mind fully engaged. It reminded me of the relationship between wisdom and spirit. When we think about spirit and passion, we characterize a Christian who just leans in with enthusiasm. When we think about wisdom, we tend to characterize an older Christian with their hands folded in prayer, who may be few in words but much in knowledge. Why should we separate the two? If you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 14, whether you have an app on your phone or you have a printed copy, as I encourage all spirit-filled people to bring to church with them, turn back about four pages to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to remind you of what Paul told us earlier about the relationship between the spirit and the mind. This is so applicable to all of us in the room. Look what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2. I preached this several months ago. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not the wisdom of this age. Boy, don't we know the wisdom of this age didn't work. Well, it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now listen to verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual The natural natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But then he says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, as you turn back to our home text, I want you to summarize that in your mind this way. There should never be a desire among Christians to see the mind as a problem and the spirit as the only source of our engagement with the Lord. But there should also never be a propensity among Christians to engage only the mind and leave the soul and the spirit of the person behind. It's both. If you send people out into this world whose Christian life has been characterized by nothing more than emotional so-called spiritual experiences in church, but you've not taught them in their mind how to discern the will of God, they will quickly lose their ability to engage a very complex sinful world with the clear understanding of God's work. But if you do nothing but engage the mind and you reduce Christianity to mere Bible study of facts and names and policies and you don't see the spirit transform the person on the inside, then you'll have nothing more before you than a cognitive assent to some religious convictions which don't sustain you in those difficult times of life. No, it's both. It's both the mind and the spirit. And that's the risk here in Corinth. Paul nowhere condemns the gift of tongues. In a few minutes, he's going to say, I speak in tongues more than any of you. He simply says, what you're doing is robbing the church of the benefit of the gift which was supposed to lead to clarity by trumping up some spiritual ecstasy that's causing your mind to be unfruitful. There's a Pretty smart guy, two guys, Hendrickson and Kistemacher, who write commentaries that I love to read. This is a quote from their commentary about this. How do the spirit and the mind function? The human mind, which has the capacity to think and understand, is intimately linked to the human spirit. When the Holy Spirit controls both the spirit and the mind, a person usually flourishes and prospers. But when the human spirit is not governed by the Holy Spirit, the mind remains spiritually idle, and the result is sterility. Let me just leave the sermon text for a moment and pastor you. Some of you may be diligent in reading your Bible, attending church. You might examine your life and see no gross disobedience. You might dot your I's and cross your T's doctrinally but you're dry, you're dry. There's no fervor, there's no joy. I remind my kids of this when I drive them to school in the morning, I'm like, hey, today's the day to serve the Lord, oh my goodness, they roll their eyes. I said, we should be glad and rejoice it. Today, I know it's gonna be hard today, but gotta make sure you have that joy and that passion For those of you who find yourself dry, engage the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to work in you, to not just control the content of your mind, but the fire within your heart. Don't be afraid of him. But then there are others of you, man, you just bleed passion. Yet there's no desire to edify and to sharpen your mind. It's one of the reasons we do what we do in here. There are very few people who are taking 45 minutes a week to roll our sleeves up and dig deep in the Word of God. But I know that when you walk out these doors, there is a world planning and contemplating and plotting about how to dig deep to question everything you believe. Apparently, now you can't even shop for underwear without a biblical world view. The reality is we know there is an agenda of an evil one that wants to confuse the smallest people among us and the church must produce people, not just pastors, principals, teachers, plumbers, welders, stay-at-home moms, real estate agents, law enforcement agents, people who go to their job knowing in their mind what they believe Having the Spirit of God on fire within them, engaging the truth of the Word and the Spirit of God together as you engage the world. And this is what Paul is saying. Beware of any gift, including the gift of tongues, that tries to separate the two. And when you come back down to navigating your life, what is navigating life? Well, it's making the next decision according to what? Have you ever said, preacher, I just want God's, starts with a W will. I just want God's will in this situation. How do you discern the will of God? The most famous verse in the book of Romans tells us, Romans chapter 12. Look what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. That's what Paul wants. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Godly men and women who most of the time make godly decisions don't do so by luck. They do so because before they come to the point of dilemma where a decision must be made, They've been renewing their mind with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God through a relationship with the Son of God for the glory of God. And when this is the characteristic of a woman's life, then when she steps into a point of decision, because she comes to it with a renewed mind, she's able to discern the will of god and this of course is what god is teaching us male and female so that is what the person who is speaking in tongues must remember there's a second person though in a corporate worship service anything you say out loud is not just for you it's heard by everybody else i'm glad you can't hear all my thoughts none of us are having friends right but the reality is is that when we pray out loud When we preach out loud, when we sing out loud, when we agree with the preaching out loud. Does anybody agree this morning? Can can I have an amen on a Memorial Day weekend? When we agree out loud, people hear us. We're encouraged by that. When I listen to preaching, July's coming and I'll have some time away from the pulpit and I'm going to go set under preaching. I want to hear good preaching, I'll drive for good preaching. When I sit under preaching and someone to my left or my right agrees in the Spirit and says, amen, thank you, Lord, or hallelujah, it encourages my heart that I'm not the only one engaged. And so everything we do corporately affects each other. And as the brothers and sisters in the Lord, we gather in this place to worship. And that's where Paul begins to breach the subject of how the gift of tongues affects the person to your left or to your right. Look what the Bible says in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, so Paul's talking about the person who's praying out loud in unrecognizable utterances, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, that's someone outside the gifting, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? when he does not know what you are saying. Everybody has a story of an old man that you say amen in your church, but he'd amen at the wrong time. You know, somebody get up and say, pray for sister so-and-so, she died last week. Amen, wait, wait, hold on now. You might not want to amen that, right? We need to amen at opportune points of agreement. Paul says, if I don't know what you're saying, if it's not spoken clearly, and if it's not interpreted, if it comes in another language, I can't amen you. So what is the great need of the one next to you? It is to be faithfully edified, which is why he says these words in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be given thanks well enough. Paul's not even questioning your sincerity here. Look what he says. For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is... It's not being built up. And then he speaks in hyperbole. Look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues. Paul traversed all kinds of cultures and communities where he had to bridge that language gap. I, I thank God that God has gifted me with the ability to do this. Look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And remember, when it appears in the singular, a tongue, he's referencing that unrecognizable utterance that no one else can understand. I have to think about the person to my left or to my right. And that leads to the final person. The one in worship who is speaking the one in worship who is hearing, and thirdly, the one in worship who's seeking. Church family, listen to me. I believe this hour is for the church. This is why we want to do everything in our power to engage any person that wants to come. That's why in the cold rain this morning, there's a parking team. People are driving golf carts. That's why before they ever enter the campus, there's a whole team of people that do nothing but pay attention to our online footprint, which is the first place people visit now. It used to be 11 o'clock on Sundays. That's not the case. Now they attend online or watch online. You can't attend online. They watch online for several times before they come. That's why we pay attention to making sure at every door, exterior or interior, there's a person who's attempting to greet you. So we we want to be sensitive to seekers to the degree that we want any person no matter your spiritual background to feel welcome. The problem with the seeker sensitive movement is that they continue that thinking in the sermon and they water down the gospel. I reserve only one place on Sundays where we plan to offend you. That's when we open the book. I want the book to love you, offend you, heal you, strengthen you, convict you, challenge you, because God, not me, not any leader in our church, God has the right to deal with you in honesty and truth, and he does that through his word. But the fascinating thing is, is that no champion of the truth can be found greater than Paul. Yet Paul never lets us forget about lost people. Look what happens beginning in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. I love that. What's happening is, Paul is saying, you're acting like children in a negative way. Children act like children because they're children. If you've ever had an older child that you're reprimanded, you may say, stop acting like a baby. You're not a baby anymore. You're a big girl. You're a big boy. If you've had a teenager that you're discussing their decision making and you're trying to lovingly poke holes in their logic because holes there are many there. And you say to them, you're not thinking about this fully, and if you'll take a step back, let me help you do that. And part of that is just letting them grow up and make poor decisions at times. Part of it is protecting them from decisions, and part of it is helping them get to the right decision, but allowing them a certain measure of time and freedom to do it in their own undeveloped mind. We recognize the development of humans. None of you would say that 17-year-old you made better decisions than you today, unless, of course, you've digressed. If you have, your wife can bump you right now and ask you to grow up. But the the point is, is that Paul's saying spiritually, you're acting like children, And you need to think more maturely. Now, what are they doing? I'm not accusing this of you or any other particular person, regardless of their belief of the gift of tongues. In Corinth, one of the problems has been selfishness from the beginning of the book. They're making their Christian experience about themselves. Who's the best teacher, chapter 1 and chapter 2? We line up under Paul. We line up under Apollos. We line up under Cephas. And then they say, oh, 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 it's about us, and so we're not going to call out sexual sin in the church, chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's about us, and so we're not going to submit to spiritual leadership, chapters 10 and 11. It's about us, and so we're going to abuse spiritual gifts, chapter 11, chapter 12. And so they're making it about them selves. Paul's not giving up on them. Paul doesn't cease to praise them. He's loving them, but he says in verse 20 pretty clearly, and I can't put it any more clearly than he does, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. I love that. There's nothing that speaks of purity more than a baby, more than a child. It's sickening to watch the sexualization of children in our culture, and our community. And don't, don't mince words with it. Make no bones. That's exactly what's happening when grown men pretend to be girls. It's a fetish. It's not a lifestyle. It's a sickening thing. And so we know there is an innocence that children over time lose, but we want to protect it in age-appropriate ways until their minds can understand and discern parts of life that are only for adulthood and that are not for childhood. And, And so Paul, understanding this, says, when it comes to how you act, I want you to chase the innocence of children. But when it comes to how you think, I want you to grow in the maturity of adult. In other words, don't be good at being bad. Be bad at thinking bad. Jeremiah, in prophes- prophesying against the people of God, said it this way in his great prophecy. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. Now, again, Jeremiah's using the worst parts of childhood. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. We have no reason to believe Jeremiah hated children. He's saying, just like a child cannot make mature decisions, my people are childish in the most important decisions, and they are passionate about the sinful decisions. Now, what does this have to do with Corinth and the gift of tongues? Everything. Paul is saying in your pursuit of your next experiential, spiritual ecstasy, you're forgetting about the lost people who are coming to see what God is doing in your presence. And in forgetting about them, you're leaving them in a position of being unredeemed. Look what the Bible says after verse 20. He says in verse 21, In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me," says the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah 28:11. I'll put Isaiah 28:11 on the screen. For by people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Now, what's this have to do with anything? The people in Isaiah 28 are Assyrians. Here's what he says. Isaiah says, if you don't repent, Jews, then I'm going to bring judgment to the Assyrians. And when you find people showing up who don't speak your language, it's going to be a sign that judgment has come. It'd be like a young man in a foxhole wondering where the enemy is at night and hearing foreign voices near him. That would not breed courage. It would breed fear. Unintelligible words to unbelievers leave them in a state of unbelief because the only way you believe is to respond to the clear proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul says that when people outside the church hear these unrecognizable utterances, it's a sign of judgment to them. That's why he goes on to explain it beginning in verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment. For while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, a clear word is a sign of blessing to the church. An unclear word is a sign of judgment to the lost. That's what he's saying. Now watch the transition in verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul got on to them for being so consumed with their individualistic understanding of this somewhat mystical connection with the Lord that they forgot in corporate worship the clear proclamation of the word, whether it be a member testifying or a preacher preaching is what brings people to salvation. Remember what Paul said about his journey to Corinth way back in chapter two, he says in chapter two, verses one through five. And when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, In other words, Paul says, I did not try to convince you with words you couldn't even understand, though he's not talking about the gift of tongues. He's talking about the rhetoric of the day to whip you up into believing. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul said, when I got there, I preached one thing, Jesus crucified for your sins. This was the gospel, and I told you that. And then he goes on to say, and I was with you in weakness and in fear. In other words, it wasn't about me. I was humble, I was in fear of what God God was doing, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I didn't try to ooh and awe you, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul ultimately says, when I stand as a broken sinner saved by grace, and I tell people, about Christ and his love and his life and his death and his resurrection and his offer to forgive you of your sins if you will believe upon him. Holy, the Holy Spirit honors the clear, unadulterated teaching of the gospel and you got saved. And when you got saved from that, You knew you weren't saved by my use of language, by my personal charisma. You were saved by the resurrected Lord that I clearly told you about. And the fascinating thing about the way the passage ends this morning is that Paul paints this beautiful picture of how people are saved when the church, whether it be a church member or a leader of the church, clearly explains the gospel. In fact, I want to close with that. Look at verse 24. He says, but if all prophesy, remember prophecy is that clear speaking of the word, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convinced by all. What's the opposite of that? Look at verse 23. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter... Will they not say that you are out of your minds? Paul knows exactly what's going to happen when people who are not spiritual come upon the misuse of a gift. They're going to say, what is going on here? These people are insane. They've lost their minds. But when the gospel is clearly taught, look what happens in verse 24. It's so rich. What's the first thing? People are convicted of their sins. And once you're convicted of your sin, you know you have to give an account for your sin. You become aware of the judgment of God. In fact, I've taken these two little verses and made a simple list of what happens based on verse 24 and verse 25. You're convicted of your sin because you're held accountable for your sin and you know there's nothing or no one that can take it away on this earth. But then you realize that God not only loves you, you're fully known. The Bible says the heart is fully disclosed. There's no hiding from God. He knows you fully, yet loves you eternally. And then the scripture says you fall on your face. This is a sign of a woman or a man who's humble and broken. You don't ask Jesus to join your team. He's not interested in being your co-pilot. Tear that bumper sticker off. Terrible theology. He flies the plane, cause he built the plane, and he built you. He comes in as Lord, and the only response to being saved is worship. You didn't save yourself, so you worship. And then when a woman or a man is convicted of their sin, they feel the weight of being held accountable for their sin, and yet they see God fully seeing them in their filth, yet loving them. They become humble and broken before the Lord, Forgiven to a relationship with Christ. They stand to their feet, not prideful, but fully engaged in worship. And then, and only then, what would they say about that church? Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. That's exactly how verse 25 ends. He says, and declare that God is really among you. I know this is a passage dealing with the gift of tongues but it's so much more than that is that the story of your life would you describe your salvation in that way where you said you know I I remember when I was fully convicted I knew that I held my sin no one could take it away I know God knows me inside and out yet he loves me I'm overwhelmed by the weight of my sin and the goodness of God And so I carry the burden of my sin, and I lay it at Calvary. And I believe that the blood of Christ covers it and removes it. And with that, I stand to worship a king who has done for me what I could never do for myself. And I acknowledge that when people like me are together, the Lord is in this place. You may be an outsider. You may have been a visitor today. Maybe you're watching online from some other state or country. Maybe you got invited by a friend. If this is not your story, it needs to become your story. And if it is your story, revisiting that journey in your life, you know what it'll do? Oh, go all the way back to point number one. It'll illuminate your mind and ignite your spirit. I want to be around people who engage in both.